welcome to the Ray Harryhausen podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archive to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast and our third music special. So right on the heels of our Bernard Herrmann episode 2 and our early, early years episode 1 we're now into the um, the 1960s so in the episode today we're going to be having a listen and a chat about first men in the moon from 1964 1 million years bc from 1966 and the valley of guanji 1969 and uh, i'm joined today by our collections manager connor heaney and connor you've got some exciting news because you've done some real in-depth research there for uh, valley of guanji that's right, the uh, wonderful Entrada Records released the full score for the Valley of Guanji earlier this year, and this is uh, something that I think it surprised us at the foundation and it blindsided a lot of fans because we'd all just assumed that this was uh, one of the soundtracks that was lost to history, that they, that would never sort of be recovered, and so we were really happy and delighted to, to see that the Valley of Guanji had been released, and Douglas Fake the chap who worked on putting this release together very kindly has, has sent me through some detailed notes on his experience of of collecting all of the different elements that were necessary to, to put this CD release out. And it's fascinating. I'm looking forward to getting into the chat because lost items being recovered is, is something very exciting, especially when you work in an archive, because it gives you hope that anything else could be out there and uh, this was definitely something that we were surprised and very happy to see turn up in the year 2018. Yes definitely. Now in terms of the Ray Harryhausen legacy what's happened after so many films with the iconic Bernard Herrmann um, Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer now engage different composers for each of their films right up to Clash of the Titans. So we kick off first with First Men in the Moon which was originally going to be a Bernard Herrmann project um, but that didn't happen so Bernard Herrmann recommended a good friend of his Laurie Johnson and uh, he took the reins and I think produced a, a Herrmann-esque wouldn't you say Connor a Herrmann-esque score. Yes definitely in parts and, and the music in this episode is going to be very diverse uh, compared to our, our first two musical retrospectives because, as you say, the Ray Harryhausen and Charles Schneer engaged with, with different composers for each film and these films were all very different as well, different genres. And I think First Men in the Moon has got a very interesting score because there are elements of Bernard Herrmann there but also the movie itself has uh, elements of science fiction but also comedic elements in the first half of the film too and so Laurie Johnson produced a, a multifaceted score which which starts out with a quite an entertaining and almost almost comical score at times and then slowly that develops into a quite eerie science fiction score as the film's plot progresses and with some of the stop motion sequences there's definite nods to Bernard Herrmann um, who was who was a good friend of Laurie Johnson's and I think it was a, an affectionate tribute to Herrmann's previous work with Ray Harryhausen. 
So first up um, is the main title. Here we go. Interestingly, fans and audiophiles will um, recognise that that was a stereo um, recording of the main title for First Men in the Moon. Now, originally we were going to use a source material, uh, the rather splendid Cloud9 uh, CD, which came out in 1990, which had the mono selection from the original score. However, since the 4K Blu-ray release of First Men in the Moon by Columbia Pictures, the score is available separately as a separate track and it is the original stereo mix which was heard in very few theatres at the time because virtually nobody had stereo playback and they they would have had multiple speakers but they would all have been sourcing mono um, either opticals or mag track so that was really lovely to hear that um, much more enriched and deeper sound um, actually in stereo what what did you think Connor because you you've listened to both versions you've got the mono uh, cloud nine which is which is clear sound but mono has a, f- a flatness about it doesn't it yeah that's right the uh, like everybody else the, the copy that we have here in the archive is the the cloud nine release which uh, I've listened to a number of occasions but it's one of the fantastic features of of these uh, newly restored blu-rays is that you can watch the film with the score isolated and uh, it gives a different perspective on the movie and lets you hear the the music on its own now you host or you hosted you took part in a screening of first men in the moon in london this year which would have featured the score how did that go john it went very well. So it was at the Regent Street Cinema and we had the uh, the world premiere of the 4K fully restored version. So 4K means a, uh, a a much higher definition. So it's four to five times sharper than, if you like, a Blu-ray um, film would have been on a Blu-ray playback. And it looks splendid. And it's one of Ray's most beautiful films because it's his only Panavision anamorphic film. Um, the film received a special 70 millimeter presentation in Germany when it showed and it's likely that the original uh, score was um, in stereo for that release but uh, it it sounded wonderful the sound throughout was terrific not all of Ray's films have separate music elements Jason and the Argonauts for example you can't listen to the music elements separately for that but the film went very well it was well received 
and it's a tribute to Ray's legacy that a big studio like Columbia have decided to do a 4K master of First Men in the Moon, whilst many other films from the time that were considered to be much higher profile are left sat on the shelves gathering dust. So very excited. It was a full house and we hope that that 4K will now be uh, spinning around the world. And you, you've got another couple of selections, haven't you, for First Men in the Moon, Connor? Maybe after that we can have a little chat about Laurie Johnson himself. Yes, that's right. So I, I, as I mentioned uh, near the start of our chat, I think one of the interesting aspects of the First Men in the Moon score is the fact that it is so multifaceted. So to show you... Um, some of the juxtaposition between the different themes of the the film. Uh, we're going to listen now to Cavour's Experiments, which I think if you've seen the film and it's it's fantastic, Lionel Jeffrey's performance as Cavour, very entertaining, quite quite comedic to watch, particularly in the early parts of the film where it's very much a tale of of English eccentrics uh, and the music from the the small town of Dimchurch and in uh, Cavour's laboratory is, is a lot of fun. So we'll we'll listen to that first and then contrast that with uh, the track uh, Lens Pit slash Shadows, which takes place later in the movie and it's on on the moon when the uh, when the leading protagonists are starting to encounter the selenites and there's a far eerier atmosphere. It's far 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 fewer instruments and. A lot darker. Um, so we'll, we'll contrast those two tracks now before talking about Laurie Johnson himself. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. 
it's interesting hearing both of those. People say to me, well, the, the, the more lighter music is something Bernard Herrmann wouldn't have done for First Men in the Moon. Three Worlds of Gulliver, people, are we forgetting? You know, that, that has a proper sing-song in it. So I think um, Laurie Johnson is playing a page from the Bernard Herrmann spotting session where, where a composer will sit down with the producer and director and uh, spot compose some of the uh, some of the key scenes to, to set up styles and themes for the whole film. So I think he's done a terrific job. Um, I must say, I am surprised when I've had a, a, a look at First Men in the Moon and where it's been available. Very limited release. Um, it's quite a collector's edition now if you try and find it anywhere. So I do hope that maybe the good folk down at Intrada might perhaps have a look at the stereo stems that are in the uh, the Sony Pictures library and perhaps do a... Uh, a, a full belts and braces re-release for First Men in the Moon in stereo with one of their marvellous Entrada booklets. But Laurie Johnson himself, he's uh, he's quite the character because, of course, he's mostly known for his um, his work on British films. Of course, he did the themes to uh, the Avengers. He, he did so many other major feature films as well. He worked on Doctor Strangelove. He did genre stuff like It's Alive. So quite a sort of a, a mixed bag of... Uh, of work from him but his his television work is really quite well known so most people here will have heard Jason King the new Avengers and of course the professionals uh, iconic theme there from the uh, late 70s early 80s um, were you aware of um, Laurie Johnson as a composer Connor at all I think I recognized him most from uh, Captain Kronos which is the, the Hammer film starring our, our good friend Caroline Monroe, who of course later went on to star in The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. All of these uh, television shows that you mentioned, of course I'm aware of them, I've seen repeats of, of The Avengers and The Professionals and so forth, uh, very much the, the content of uh, of Infinity Magazine, which is the magazine that, that you wrote an article for earlier this year, John. Um, Infinity Magazine is the sort of new British science fiction magazine which covers a lot of these 1970s television shows in, in some detail and uh, yeah, the, the themes that you're talking about are iconic and I think even people who, who maybe don't know about Laurie Johnson's other work would recognise these these themes. And interestingly, there's, there's these wheels within wheels because uh, Laurie Johnson's iconic Avengers theme and the professionals of course links with Ray Harryhausen because Brian Clemens who who wrote and created both of those iconic series, um, was the screenwriter on The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And we often bump into uh, Brian Clemens' uh, family, uh, George and Samuel, who who discuss their father and are, are busily trying to, to raise the profile of his wonderful legacy as well. So it is quite interesting how many, how many Harryhausen wheels cross over with, whether it's Hammer or the Avengers, the professionals, and that that whole world of iconic fifties uh, and sixties television and film drama. Yes, for an American man, he certainly was uh, heavily involved in in so much uh, British culture of the 1960s and 70s and it is good fun now when you're watching films and television shows from that era to to see the names pop up in, in the credits and say oh he worked on one of Ray's films or oh, he, there's a connection there and yeah it's, 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 a, it's a small world after all. And Laurie who was born in 1927 is still with us he's aged 91 and so it would be nice at some point in the future if we can perhaps catch up with the man himself and uh, and, and get his memories of working on First Men in the Moon and, of course, working with iconic uh, Bernard Herrmann. Uh, shall we move on next, Connor? 
Yes, I think so. To something, something completely different. Something which, uh, which has a very different sound to, uh, well, every film in in Ray Harryhausen's filmography, and probably most film so- soundtracks that you've heard before. Uh, Mario Nassimbeni's score for One Million Years BC, which is uh, far more abstract and unusual, uh, but also I'd say very haunting and memorable for for that reason. What do you think of the score? I'm not a fan. You don't like it. <laughs> um, I don't like it. And, you know, the thing about the film and the score is that I like the film. I think it could have been served better with perhaps Jerry Goldsmith from the time. I I don't always think that it serves a film well to make music that sounds as if it's made by the people who are on screen. Hand of a Thousand Days, Henry VIII films, you know, Woodwind and Piccolo's, that doesn't always work. If we think of something like Chariots of Fire, a film set in the 1930s and 40s, had a synthesized score and it worked very well those two um, unexpected mediums um, didn't clash they complemented and I, I have a feeling when you watch the film the music's been dialed in by the editor so I think there was a certain amount of cues that uh, Mario had created for Hammer they sat on the shelf and they were sort of dialed in and out depending on what the sequence was so I, I have a feeling that th- th- there was no spotting sessions involved where the composer would sit down and write individual takes for the individual scenes i'm not a fan and and i don't think um if ray harryhouse was in charge of this film had it been a ray and charles schneer production i don't think uh, mario nassimbini would have been uh would have been the composer that said a lot of people are fans of the music and uh you you've queued up one that's uh, a different mix to the theme that was from the film connor haven't you that's right and, and like you say it's it's different from all of of ray's other soundtracks from the soundtracks from Ray's other films and One Million Years BC in many ways was, was different from the rest of, of Ray's projects because he wasn't working with Charles Sneer, he'd been hired by Hammer and he wasn't in charge really of the, the final product in terms of aspects like the soundtrack which possibly makes it stand out as being so unusual. The track Tumac Meets Luana is quite a good mix of, of different themes so as you say John there's what one particular uh, motif which is used throughout the films um, using different instruments or different vocals and this is Tumac meets Luana which has uh, starts off quite loudly and then descends into some of the, the quieter and more percussive uh, instruments that were used so quite primitive sounding uh, which, which I guess was the intention uh, a little abstract which I suppose goes for, for the entire score and uh, as you mentioned, quite unusual. I have to say, I quite like it, but I like strange music. I like the uh, the slightly abstract nature of, of this music. I had this on once in my car, and my friend asked what on earth I was listening to, because it is quite strange. So have a listen now and see what you think.
What I will say is that the quality is good and it's the mono uh, stems that this CD was created for by, um, I think the, the album is, the label is called Legends and it was last in publication in uh, 1994 on CD. Um, I agree it is abstract, I still don't like it. Um, if we think about the opening of 2001 in 1969, Stanley Kubrick's epic, very abstract in terms of its style um, and in terms of music as well, despite the fact that the Blue Danube turns up. Very abstract for the opening, works perfectly, absolutely works to a T. Um, I think that's good abstract where it adds to a sense of an uneasiness for the audience, it tries to unsettle you and it really works with the opening scenes of uh, the apes and the monolith and the monolith arriving i just think here um i'm not convinced i i've always thought the music was kind of dialed in and it just doesn't quite work for me on the plus side brian clemens wrote the script on this and of course ray's work is is exceptional and the film was enormously successful so despite my um probably lone voice of not liking the music the film went on to have two sequels, When Dinosaurs Rule the Earth and Creatures the World Forgot. And Mario uh, Nessambini did the music for both. So, you know, he was perceived to have done the right thing. And he must have had a good time if he came and did the scores for those two films as well. And, and Connor, you've heard um, on the same CD all three of those scores are together. They're fairly interchangeable, though, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's, uh, obviously, I think Hammer were, were happy with what he'd done on uh, what, what he'd composed on One Million Years BC and essentially asked them to, to replicate the, that style again on, on the following two films. The The only other uh, movie that I've seen that was scored by Mario Nassim Benny was uh, The Vikings with, with Kirk Douglas. I, have, I haven't seen or, or recognised anyway um, any other soundtracks by him, but the, the, the score for the Vikings was a little more conventional, so perhaps he, he was asked or had decided artistically to to perform this uh, sort of primitive, uh, otherworldly, prehistoric music for, for the uh, for the three caveman pictures that he worked upon. Um, and of course, you know, raised dinosaurs are iconic. That is one thing, I suppose, you don't really have uh, any themes that you'd immediately associate with any of raised creatures from one million years BC. Um, it tends more to be about the, the human drama and the, the landscapes which are which are highlighted. Have you seen uh, When Dinosaurs Rule the Earth, though, the Jim Danforth? Yes, of course, yes. Yeah, I've, I've seen, I've seen yeah, that, the, yeah. the follow-up, and uh, yeah, some, some nice animation there from, from Jim Danforth. You, you know, um, lots of young people now do mashups on in, on the internet, so they get um, their favourite versions of films and, and join them together. What I'd like to see, if anyone can take the challenge, is imagine what maybe Bernard Herrmann or Jerry Goldsmith. Think Jerry Goldsmith and Planet of the Apes, and that was quite a percussive... Uh, score using sort of primitive instruments including pots and pans and that's fantastic that works so well if jerry goldsmith had done this how would he have done it and if somebody wants to create a, a sequence doing a, a pastiche if you will of what jerry might have done um we'll certainly take a look at it here because i think this film could be improved by being rescored and you know there are lots of films in in cinema history that had scores thrown out and in fact, in 2001, um, the original score for that uh, was thrown out and, uh, and effectively library music was more or less dialed in. So Alex North created um, an original score. Um, but uh, I'd like to see that. I think, I think an audience would be curious to see if it improves it or not. And maybe I can be put back in my box and <laughs> told I'm wrong when the, the score isn't bettered. 
Well, it is the kind of thing you do see on uh, on Blu-ray releases now as uh, alternative scores where, where somebody will create a, a modern score or a slightly different score to play, just for um, comparison's sake. Yeah, but um, you may risk the ire of uh, Harryhausen fans worldwide if you if you tamper with the original one million years BC. It'd be interesting to see what, what people think of that idea because it, it these days with... Uh, creative people so easily able to share their ideas via YouTube or SoundCloud or other channels, um, it certainly would be would be interesting to hear an alternative take on, on the film. Um, so we'll finish just with one other track from uh, from one million years from one million years BC, and this is the uh, Nupondi's Dance, starring our, our good friend Martin Beswick. And I've, I chose this track uh, mostly because it's it's quite short; it's uh, it's only a minute or so long, uh, very percussive, as we've mentioned. But this uh, sequence in the film was actually edited out of the um, US release for the film. They thought it was a little too seductive, a little too explicit for younger audience members so so this was edited out of the original release and I'm sure that ev- all of our listeners in the United States have seen the uncut version uh, but there may be may, may well be one or two people who have only seen the original uh, trimmed down American version so this is the uh, the track which is played over Nuponte's dance in One Million Years BC Again, in common with mostly all of Ray's films, it's the mono versions that are available on CD. Now, the films would have been recorded in stereo, so the scoring stages were set up for stereo recording. Um, but as we've discussed before, what happens is they get mixed down into mono when the track laying is done, when the, the final double mix is done for the film. So the music, the sound effects, and then the dialogue, which are all separate elements... Um, are mixed together with other Atmos elements to create one single soundtrack. So in, in a sense, we're very lucky that the scores do exist separately because in some cases, such as Jason and the Argonauts, the score doesn't exist separately. There's a, um, I think it's the uh, music and sound effects are merged. So they can't be unmerged yet. Technology hasn't caught up with us. But uh, a film that did surprise us when we heard it was being released was The Valley of Grandi, which has not had a independent release on its own there's been some compilation albums which have had some um, nods to the music but to have its own standalone soundtrack like one million years bc or first men in the moon was unheard of because everyone had been told and assumed that the score um, no longer existed as a single element and the good folk down at entrada who do absolutely superb 
soundtrack releases went to great lengths to create the very best sonic experience and a marvellous booklet that really, you know, it could be published into its own book. Um, Connor, pick up the story there because you were in touch with, with uh, uh, Doug Fake down at Intrada and he gave you the inside scoop, really, on, uh, on how they found the film. That's right. So, so Doug um, very kindly got in touch and expanded upon some of some of uh, the story, which which is detailed in in the liner notes uh, from the Intrada release this year. Um, to give a bit of context, this is the fourth release that uh, Intrada have released of um, from from Ray Harryhausen's films. Um, they've previously made a recording of Jason and the Argonauts with an orchestra, because of course, as you mentioned, the original Bernard Herrmann score is uh, no longer with us for now. Who knows what might turn up in the future? They've also released Clash of the Titans, and the, the Clash of the Titans release was, again, one of these fantastic uh, double-disc scores. And they also released The Golden Voyage of Sinbad, which, again, was previously only available in mono, uh, uh, but they found the original stereo elements and released a fantastic double-disc f- packed full of extras and alternate takes and informative liner notes. So they've released lots of... Um, very interesting material in the past. But the Valley of Guanju was really the holy grail. They'd had fans asking about this particular soundtrack for years and it had just been assumed that the uh, the original score had, had gone missing. However, Doug Fake was aware of uh, 15 minutes of, of music from the film. Uh, cassette quality, which had circulated among sort of bootleggers or fans and collectors for years. So... So he knew that there was some of the music available, and it was actually uh, composer Jerome Morosi's daughter, Susanna, who, who came in to speak to him as, in his office, and uh, she revealed that she actually had this uh, original 15 minutes of material from, from Guanji, and it was Jerome's personal copy of this material. So that started things, and that, that got Entrada Records thinking that the rest of the score may be available elsewhere. So it's not just a case of discovering one element of the soundtrack. It's not that you find a, a ten and it's got the soundtrack in, in a complete state. There are different elements which, which are joined together and it's uh, you're really sort of like a, an archaeologist of these long-lost uh, music elements. And that's what I found very interesting, John. Yes, and you know, it's um, as you say that uh, Jerome Moross's daughter had a had a kind of an archive copy. Um, Elmer Bernstein's family um, have done similar. You know, Elmer kept copies, reference copies, quarter-inch mag tracks of almost all of his scores. So when Saturn Three had a, had a CD release and and Slipstream, these were based on the archived um, tapes that the composers had. These aren't the best quality. A quarter-inch mag track is um, is not ideally what you'd want to be recording. Um, onto or mastering from from a CD, ideally on 35 mil mag track would be better because it's a, a much physically wider format. So there's a, a much greater um, latitude with the music. There's less compression involved and of course less hiss. But the, the job that they've done here is absolutely terrific. Now it, the score is in mono, of course, although it would have been recorded in stereo. And the fact they're able to to piece it all together is really, um, I take my hat off them for their dedication.
when you know when you ask a studio have you got something it's easier for them to say no we haven't I've had that recently with my Lost Films book. We've been asking people for things and they'll say no almost straight away and you'll think, well, you haven't looked. And they're like, yeah, well, they'll pretend to have a look. Yep, we still haven't got it, no. <laughs> because if there's not really any money in it for them or um, there's, there's no reason why they need to look for something, then the assumption is that if they can't find it, it therefore must be lost. So it's very hopeful that the value of Guanji has been found and has been released. Maybe other scores can be found and be released. Uh, you know, a stereo version of Three Worlds of Gulliver, a stereo version of um, Jason, of course, would be absolutely marvellous. They have since been re-recorded by other composers, but, you know, for, for real audio files and soundtrack collectors, you want the originals. You know, you want to hear what Bernard Herman did, how he orchestrated. Um, and in the case of Jerome Moros, I mean, he's he's really a... I mean, he's not an odd choice given that it's a cowboy film. But um, I don't know. It's strange. I mean, he's most known for the big country. So and that was in 1958. So if you're employing somebody who does grand sweeping Americana, then you're going to get that kind of score. And, you know, reading through the Entrada booklets, which um, I hope most of you now have bought because it probably soon uh, sell out. uh, Jerome Ross isn't particularly complimentary of... um, of the film, I mean, he wasn't a he wasn't a fan of of the film itself. I think he found it too incredible, um, the science fiction element. Um, and I know, having spoken to Ray about it, you know, he likes the score in places and has has and thinks it effective. But the fact they never returned to Jerome Ross for anything else, I think, um, speaks volumes, Connor. Yeah, you're right. I think um, uh, just from what you were saying there. Uh, it seems like this 15 minutes of, of music was enough to get the ball rolling and for uh, Warner Brothers really to open the door to their archive and, and find the other missing material. So that's all it takes is that um, impetus to, to, to uh, uncover the missing pieces. In terms of the, the score for the film, um, when Entrada sent over a few copies for our archive, it was one that um, Ray's daughter Vanessa was very excited about because... Um, Guanji is one of her favourite of her father's films and it's one that uh, she she was on the set of as a, as a very young girl. And she said this is a score that her dad actually used to listen to quite often. I, I suppose it was the re-recording with the Prague Philharmonic Orchestra in, in the mid-90s that, which Ray owned and which she would listen to at home. So I, I, I guess maybe for the, the film itself there's some questions about the uh, the suitability of the music at times or, or the way that it was edited into the film. But uh the soundtrack itself, I think, I think Ray used to listen to with with his family, and uh, was quite fond of. But again, quite unusual. Um, it, it sounds like it, it could have been for a Western movie in a lot of places, and uh, very, very different from from other soundtracks and other scores uh, in the Ray Harryhausen filmography. Um, the the Entrada release, as you mentioned, they they often sell out quite quickly. So if you haven't if you haven't got a copy yet, you do need to, to check out the Entrada web store. And there's some really interesting material on, on the soundtrack and on the film itself in, in the inlay booklet here. All of the unusual material which turned up, not just the score itself, but alternative takes and uh, you know strange sort of incidental music from the film too. I mean, that is that is so unusual. When I speak to people in studio archives, whether it's Columbia, Warner's, 20th Century Fox, they'll tell you that there are no trims that means outtakes or scenes cut from the cutting copy, no trims, um, pre-1970. 
um, and, and often pre-1980 as well. So once the film has been locked after it's been um, signed off for its cutting copy, all the negative trims and all the other superfluous bits and bobs are, um, are, are effectively put into a bin. So, you know, Intrada have, gosh, is it about 20 additional tracks here, um, which are the alternates, um, including some of the source material, so music that appears within the film itself, um, such as the marching band and the cowboys and Indian sequence and so on. That that would require what's called source music. So the fact that all of those are here as well, I think is absolutely marvellous. So people talk about oral histories. You know, what Entrada are doing is they're doing the equivalent of oral histories, but with music and with composers. And many of these composers now are finding a new audience and filmmakers and musicians have a chance to find out how they were motivated and to listen to the original recordings i think is absolutely amazing um, and as connor says you know you need to pop down to entrada and and have a look through their shop because i have a an office here full of their stuff and i've been a big fan of their music for for many years now for about 20 years so um you know it's marvelous to see harryhausen films released and Hopefully there'll be there'll be more to come because we have some uh, we have some finds of ourselves coming up in future episodes, but we'll keep that for for a later time. But uh, the next track you've chosen, Connor, is one I would have chosen as well. The Eohippus escapes. Music is excellent in this. The animation is superb, and here it's a perfect marriage, I think, of of music and and stop motion. Don't you think? Yeah, I think I I chose the Eohippus because it's. Uh... Fan- fantastic creature it's kind of uh, different from the, the other dinosaurs in the film it's something which uh, is obviously based on a, a real animal so everybody knows how a horse moves so so Ray had to have his animation spot on and it's a, it's a lovely sequence uh, the Eohippus escape sort of pushes the, the, the plot onwards to, to the Forbidden Valley and, uh, and yes I think it, it sums up the music from the film nicely then lastly you've chosen tj's act what's the background to that one well again i just thought this was um quite unusual this is some of the source material that that you mentioned it's the uh, some of the, the diegetic music from the film which is actually being played through some of the cir- circus sequences the show music in the early part of the movie and this is gia joland's 
character and her act with the horse. If you remember the film, the, the horse dives off the, the top board into, into a, a pool of water. The music itself is interesting, but what I find amazing is the fact that it was discovered and put onto CD so nearly 50 years after the film's release because, as you mentioned, this is the kind of material that you would expect to go missing and uh, the hard work that Entrada have done to, to, to source all of these different elements and put them together and piece them together on, onto a, a quality CD release, I think, is is remarkable. I, I, I suspect that some people underestimate just how much hard work goes into uh, releasing soundtracks to films and, and a lot of people won't realise how difficult it can be to, to find original music from classic films, films you'd expect to have soundtrack releases. So again, this is a, a bit of a curio, something, something unusual from the um, from the release this year and I think very interesting to hear um, isolated from the rest of the film. <laughs> marvellous and uh, that whole kind of circus vibe makes me want to to pull out the blu-ray because of course value of grandeur has been beautifully restored by warner's um, warner home video and it's available now as a, a beautiful blu-ray so uh, connor that's nice now that's um three episodes of of film music specials for us and uh, i think there's going to be probably two more episodes because although there are there are only a handful of films left is it three films left um the stories behind them are um are really quite something and we're keeping something special for clash of the titans which will be an episode in itself um and we we thought we'd do a bit of a uh, a yearly roundup connor didn't we we'd, we'd uh, let people know what's coming for next year and uh and advise them of a few things that we've done the last few months that's right it's been a it's been such a busy few months it's been a busy year we've had a lot to do um and it's been a f- another fantastic year for the foundation there's been some big announcements and we have a, a lot of work to do in the in the coming months because of course our centenary plans are are shaping up and and taking taking place and, and picking up speed and uh, we're we're focused on our huge exhibition in edinburgh in the summer of 2020 um, please keep an eye on our, our website and our facebook and our twitter accounts for more information on on that but uh, in the meantime if you want updates we now have a, a ray harryhausen newsletter which you can sign up for on all of those platforms and this will be a, a monthly newsletter with uh, information about our podcasts and our exhibitions and other exciting related news where we'll be sure to put some some special material into our newsletters too things that uh, that maybe don't appear on our website or our, our social media accounts about our restorations and about some behind the scenes information about what we're doing here in the foundation's archive absolutely and as christmas looms uh, if you want to get a stocking filler then we can recommend richard hollis's marvelous book uh, harry house and the movie posters 
and a contribution of the funds from the book go towards the Creature Restoration Project here at the Foundation. And and it's a pretty good book. I mean, it's for anyone who's interested in films or ephemera from that sort of era, then um, it's the perfect stocking filler at twenty nine ninety nine. It's a bargain at, uh, at uh, that price, I think. And that's fast selling out. So signed copies are available at the Forbidden Planets in London. And, uh, of course, you can order yours directly from Titan Books and from Amazon.co.uk uh, or .com, wherever you get your Amazon books. And, uh, oh, on the subject of that, SFX Magazine, um, which is a sort of a premier magazine for science fiction, in their December issue, they've got a special free gift, Connor, haven't they? That's right. SFX Magazine are giving away a Harryhausen calendar for 2019. And specifically, it's a Harryhausen movie poster calendar. So... Based upon uh, Richard Hollis's poster book, uh, there's a different poster for each month, so it goes right the way through from Mighty Joe Young all the way to Clash of the Titans, one for each month of the year, and it it looks wonderful. Um, I got a chance to to see this uh, this free gift over the weekend, and people keep contacting me to tell me that they've bought a copy of SFX and and they now have the calendar up and ready for for next month for January. So it's a nice little freebie. Hopefully that that will whet your whet your appetite to take a look at Richard's book if you've not had a chance to order it yet because some of the artwork is fantastic and of course um, anybody who um, who donated the imagery for Richard's book is credited in the calendar as well which I think is a nice touch so so collectors worldwide if your if your image was used in the book and was also used in the calendar then then your name's in the calendar too credited as part of your archive. That's marvellous. And Ray Harryhausen, of course, would be delighted. I mentioned to Ray a few years ago about doing a book just on the posters from his films, and he, he wasn't sure if there'd be enough posters to, to make a book. And, of course, there was there was more posters than we could fit into the book. I mean, it's a 200-page book, and there are, I think there was as many variant posters left out as, as went in. The very best ones, of course, went in. So when we came up with the idea at the foundation, we, we knew that Richard Hollis would be the right person to uh, to bring this to market, as they say. And he's done a, he's done a terrific uh, job there on that book. And, uh, and next year, of course, 2019, we can talk about um, what's coming up there. We have uh, Ray Harryhausen, The Lost Movies, which... Um, which has turned into a bit of an epic enterprise because there were a lot more lost movies than we first imagined. So that's been a fabulous story that we'll share with you in uh, in 2019. And there's lots of other things happening, Connor, isn't there, next year? You, you may be the best person to speak about this because we recently made a, an announcement on Facebook regarding one of Ray's lost films, which there's been some progress on. Uh, could you tell everybody a little bit about Force of the Trojans and maybe expand a little on, on our social media and website announcement, which attracted attention worldwide? Yes, well, for the last um, 18 months, I've been in negotiations with Morningside Productions, which is uh, a company that still operates. And even though, sadly, Charles Schneer has left us, then his family still run Morningside Productions. And between us, the Ray Harryhausen Foundation and Morningside Productions, we've entered a new development deal with them to try and bring Force of the Trojans back, back from the twilight zone of where it's been in sort of development hell and onto the big screen. So we can tell you, what can we tell you, gosh, outside of the uh, announcement in Variety? We can tell you that, um, you know, we've we've got some interested parties. We're hoping to have some meetings in the... Uh, in the first half of 2019 and there's been some significant interest i mean it's a it's a it's a whole genre that fascinates the public and filmmakers alike but the very fact that ray and charles 
never got the film made in 1984, which would have been its release date, um, makes it all the more fascinating now for us today that we might finally be able to bring something um, out of the darkness and into the light. And, and to answer a lot of people's questions, oh, will it be all CGI? Will it look like all these modern films? Certainly there'll have to be an element of it looking commercial and looking relevant for today's uh, audiences because if it's a, a large budget production then we'll almost certainly have to make sure that we we find not only the dedicated Harryhausen fan but also the casual viewer who are the most important viewers in making uh, the business of the film business operate as a business um, but no it won't be an entirely CGI affair so we're very excited that we're going to be doing some stop-motion creatures and all of the designs that Ray did for the film um, will be worked on very closely and a lot of the people that worked with me on the lost movies book um, are people that had worked with ray on both force of the trojans the story of odysseus and lots of other projects where ray nearly but didn't quite bring back some stop motion monster magic so we're going to try and incorporate and work with as many of those people who are available and who are prepared to work with us um, so we're very excited and there's going to be more information in the book next year but we're certainly going to be posting more on Facebook and Twitter and as announcements are made then you will get to hear them first here through the podcast and through our our social media feeds. Yes, it sounds like the recipe for a, a podcast special sometime in 2019 when you when we are able to to go into a little more detail and I know that we we can't give too much away just now but just to to touch on the uh, the Lost Films book project. I sometimes think people um, people think we're exaggerating when we talk about the archive and how we're uncovering new material all the time. But it's true, we're, we're finding some unbelievable uh, material, both from the films that you've seen and the films that you've not seen, here in the archive or through our, our many friends and contacts worldwide. And it ties in a little bit with what we've been speaking about in this episode. About There, there are so many fascinating um, elements tucked away every every week there's there's new material being brought to light and it's one of the most satisfying things about working with a collection like this is that you just don't know what's uh what's in what's in any box or what's tucked away or or um how a certain object will tie in and and fill in the gaps in knowledge and in your understanding of the the collection as a whole so Force of the Trojans and Odysseus and all of these other fascinating um, projects which which never quite got off the ground is, is, is very interesting to be exploring them in more depth. Yes, and you know, the, in, in one way, Ray might think, oh, I don't want everyone seeing what I couldn't get off the ground. But it, it, it's, it's true that all creative people are very frustrated by the films that didn't get there, the projects they, they've really poured their heart and soul into. So one of the things we've done here, which is a little bit unusual... We've got lots of external voices in this book. So people who did know and work with Ray Harryhausen, you might expect, but also other very well-known filmmakers who discuss their own unmade projects and the effect it has on them as they move forward to the next one, having left a project or two behind. So it's very interesting from the people we've spoken to, very high-profile filmmakers who've given us a, a very sort of blunt perspective and in many cases have exclusively revealed details of their own unmade projects. So, you know, Ray's in very good company not having made many of the films that he developed. You know, we thought originally it was going to be, you know, about 40 or maybe 50 lost films. It's a lot more than that, a lot more. So I'm very excited about that. It comes out in September next year from Tyson Books. And uh, and yes, you'll be hearing a lot more from, from both of us about that. 
Now, 2019, we'll also see a couple of uh, quite notable film anniversaries. Uh, some of the movies we've been talking about in this episode. So, The Valley of Guanji will be 50 years old, and uh, First Men in the Moon will be 55 years old. Now, we always like to celebrate the um, the anniversaries of, of race films, so do keep an eye out on our on our website and social media for, for news of screenings, and perhaps there'll be another chance to see First Men in the Moon in, in 4K or to see Guanji on the big screen. Uh, another one of Ray's films which will be celebrating an anniversary is Mighty Joe Young, which will be incredibly, it'll be 70 years old. It's astonishing, again, we, we have uh, lots of material from Mighty Joe Young in our archive, and it's astonishing that this this first film that Ray worked upon is, is now going to be 70 years old. The great thing about both those films, they've been restored beautifully in high definition, so if you do pop along and see us, and if we bring anything along, then you'll certainly be in for a treat, because it'll look better than it did when they were first released, which is really... You know, which is a marvellous thing about these uh, film restorations. Well, I wanted to end the episode with a special thank you to, to Doug Fake from Entrada Records because he did go to a lot of effort. He, he sent me some, some quite detailed notes on on uh, the story behind the Valley of Guanji release, but also some of his personal history as a, as a fan of race films and of of his highlights from the music of Ray's movies. So um, to tie in the episode and as a thank you to him, uh, I'd like to play out with uh, one of the tracks that he selected as one of his favourites, which is The Sphere from First Men in the Moon. So you can hear this in stereo and um, and enjoy, enjoy the music, uh, possibly hearing it for the first time in stereo and who knows what Entrada may be able to do with this newly discovered material. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC 001419-2018. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in part without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.